Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Happy Palm Sunday. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. As Jesus was now approaching the path down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Jesus was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, that that Palm Sunday path. I am not exaggerating if I tell you I've walked it 50 times. I've I've walked it four times in the past three weeks, this rather steep path down from the Mount of Olives that leads into the city of Jerusalem. Um, Along with Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, the triumphal entry is one of the three most important events in the life of Jesus leading up to that final week. So you have his baptism where the voice from heaven declares him the son of God and then he begins his ministry. There is this climactic moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where his glory is revealed to his disciples. And then there's the triumphal entry. This is the first time that Jesus has allowed himself to be publicly proclaimed as the Messiah. When someone would receive the revelation, Jesus would say, now's not the time. Don't tell anybody this. But on Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry, as people begin to proclaim him as the coming king, as the Messiah, Jesus allows his disciples to do that. And when the Pharisees, alarmed by this, say, you you must tell them to be quiet. Jesus says, not today, not today. If these are quiet, the stones are going to cry out. Of course, Palm Sunday... The triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem is the fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy. Hmm, God operates in terms of centuries. So slow down. Stop being in such a hurry. God says, I'm going to do something. It's going to be half a millennia before it comes to pass. 500 years before the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding a donkey. He will take away the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The weapons of war will be broken. And he will teach peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Holy Week is the clash of kingdoms. Two kingdoms collide in Jerusalem that week. Pontius Pilate, he's the Roman governor. You've heard of him. His base, his palace, his seat of governance was in Caesarea, Caesar City by 
the sea. But he has to be in town for Passover week. He has to be there because if there's going to be any trouble, if there's going to be an uprising of the Jewish people, it's going to be during Passover, which celebrates their liberation from foreign domination. And so early in that week, Pontius Pilate, representing the Roman Empire, arrives coming from the west. He's coming from Caesarea. He arrives approaching the city from the west, and I tell you, he rides upon a white stallion. And he is surrounded by 600 Roman soldiers with their armor and with their swords. That's how Pilate, representing the Roman Empire, makes its entrance into the city. Jesus, on the other hand, is coming from the east. He's coming from Jericho. He comes from the other side. And Jesus arrives, and he's not riding a war horse. At Bethphage, at the top of the Mount of Olives, he procures a donkey. He's got to have a donkey. He knows the prophecy. It's not even a full-grown donkey. It's a donkey colt. Contrasting images. Pilate on his war horse. Jesus on a half-grown donkey. Coming from opposite sides, representing different kinds of kingdom. One representing the Roman Empire. One representing the kingdom that comes from the heavens. One representing a kingdom built upon war, the other a kingdom of peace. Everything about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to begin that holy week is the opposite of Pilate's military parade. Yeah, Pilate rides a war horse, Jesus rides a donkey. There is a subversive, implicit mockery of the ways of militarism in that. Jesus is mocking the pretense of the principalities and powers who base their might on the capacity to kill. Jesus says, oh, you ride a war horse? Okay, I'll ride, a, I'll ride a donkey and it won't even be a full-grown donkey. Because I want to make the point that my kingdom is not like that. Later he will face Pilate and he will say to him, my kingdom is for this world, but not from this world. If my kingdom was from this world, my servants would be fighting, but they're not because I'm bringing a different kind of kingdom. Pilate's soldiers, these Roman soldiers, they're armed with their swords. Jesus' disciples are armed with palm branches. One with swords, one with palm branches. Jesus is, he is the king. You understand that that's what Messiah means. He is the king. He's arriving in Jerusalem to become king. That's why everybody's uptight. That's why Pilate has to be in town because he's afraid somebody's going to claim to be the king of the Jews. But you have to understand that though Jesus Christ comes to become king in Jerusalem, his kingdom is absolutely different. His scepter is a reed. His crown is made of thorns. His acclamation is by insult. Do you remember? Remember the Roman soldiers, they will mock Jesus. They will say, hail king of the Jews and then strike him in the face. And on coronation day, 
Jesus' throne will be the cross itself. This is how the kingdom of God comes, and it comes no other way. I want to say that again. This is how the kingdom of God comes, and it comes no other way. But did Jerusalem understand this? Do we understand this? Look what happens. Verse 41. This is, we've heard our gospel reading, but it leaves off in verse 40. Let me pick it up in verse 41. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He wept over it. Dominus, Dominus Flavit. Dominus Flavit. That's the name of this sermon. Dominus Flavit. It's Latin. It means, it means uh, the Lord wept. It's a, this, 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 this poem. We're going to set you right here. And I'll find you later if I need you. Thank you. By the way, have you noticed that our, our palms this year are, are more substantial? Uh-huh. Upgrade. Okay. Dominus Flavit, the Lord wept. It's the name of the sermon, but it's also the name of a Franciscan chapel on the Mount of Olives. It is a, it is a lovely, small, teardrop-shaped chapel that commemorates this moment when Jesus approaching the city, and you have to understand, when, when you're on the Mount of Olives, it, oh, the, the whole city spreads out in front of you. It's, it's by far the best viewpoint of the city of Jerusalem. It just spreads out in front of you. You see it all. And when Jesus sees the city, the people are shouting Hosanna. There's great joy. And, and in one sense, that's right, because he is the coming king and the kingdom of God is arriving. But Jesus is weeping. There's so much contradiction, so much tension here. People are shouting Hosanna, but Jesus is weeping over the city. You know, we know that famous verse, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, 35, when he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus before raising him. Jesus sharing with us in the sorrow that death brings to loved ones. And yet it's not the only time that Jesus wept. He also weeps over the city of Jerusalem. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because they can't see the things that make for peace. They're blind to them. Something has happened to their spiritual perceptivity. They cannot perceive the things that make for peace. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows, he knows what Jerusalem is really looking for. They're looking for a war-waging Messiah. They're still convinced that the only way to arrive at Shalom is through war. That if things are wrong, they have to kill the people responsible for making them wrong. That's how they still think. So they're looking for someone that will lead them in their war of liberation. 
their war for freedom. And Jesus weeps over the city because this is the tragedy. Jesus knows that when we look for a Messiah to wage our wars, we always find one. There's always a Barabbas. You understand Barabbas? Barabbas was not a serial killer, a common murderer. No, no, no. He was, he was a liberation hero. He was, some would say, a freedom fighter. He was a William Wallace. He was a Che Guevara. He was a, look out, George Washington. He was willing to launch the revolution. And in his attempt at insurrection, he had killed some people, probably Roman soldiers, or maybe Jewish collaborators, or maybe both collaborators, maybe both. And Jesus knows that's who they're, by the way, Barabbas' full name given to us by Matthew is Jesus Barabbas, Barabbas, son of the father, Jesus, son of the father. He's an alternative to Jesus of Nazareth. He is a competing Messiah. He is, in fact, a false Messiah. And Jesus knows that war-waging Messiahs will eventually come and win the people over and lead Jerusalem to its utter destruction. Look what he says. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. After Jesus had completed his ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the kingdom of God is being launched, false messiahs did come. And they said, we are sent from God to liberate you. And in the year 66, AD 66, the first Jewish war breaks out, led by these men claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus had warned them, when they come in my name, that is the name of Messiah, do not follow them. But most did, because they found that very appealing. And so the war breaks out in 66. And at first, the people following these messiahs, they, they had some initial victories. But eventually, within four years, the Roman Empire marched upon Jerusalem. And just as Jesus said, they set up their ramparts. They hemmed it around. They hemmed it in on every side. And finally, in August of AD 70, the city was destroyed. The temple was burned. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Tens of thousands of people were enslaved. And as Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. Why? Because they did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. Now, this, this occurrence was not retributive punishment from God. God was not saying, you failed to recognize what I was doing. Therefore, I will do this to you. That's not what happened. AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, the horror that came from that, was not retributive, but it was consequential. I mean, when we do not go in the way of God, there are consequences. 
We've said it this way many times. We're more punished by our sins than for our sins. That God is merciful and loving does not mean that sin is without consequences. The wages of sin still is death. And so God was not responsible for the Roman vengeance upon Jerusalem. But Jesus had warned them, if you go the way of war, it's going to end bad. Follow me in the way of peace. But most did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. And that's why Jesus weeps. He wept because the lie of a holy war had blinded their eyes. What do I mean by holy war? The lie that you can wage a war with God on our side. And of course, that was the message from all of these false messiahs. God is for us. We're God's people. If we will fight, God will stand by our side and fight with us. And it's very appealing. And most believed it. And Jesus knew most would believe it. So he weeps over the city because he sees where that will lead them. When war becomes holy in our eyes, we're blind to the things that make for peace. That's what Jesus said. What are the things that make for peace? Well, we could say lots of things. But really, I, what are the things that make for Patience and trust. Patience and trust. Patience and trust. Some of you will believe this, not everybody. But these are the things that make for peace. Patience and trust. Patience, just, just patience. Patience with the world around us. Look, we, we serve a God who gives prophecies that won't be fulfilled for 500 years. You're going to have to be patient. Patience and trust. Trust God. Trust God. This characterized the early church. Patience and trust. This is, this is what Alan Crider makes so clear in his marvelous book that I cannot speak of highly enough. Came out, I think, in maybe 2017. I think that's when it was. The patient ferment of the early church. He's a scholar who knows what he's talking about. He knows the early church as well as anybody. And he, he shows us how the early church was rooted in the fertile soil of patience. And their primary activity for changing the world was to trust God. Their primary activity for changing the world was simply to be the world already changed by Christ. They were not interested in using the means of force to change the world. They were patient and they would trust God. War is impatience. War says, I can't wait for things to change. I'll make them change. This was not the early church. The early church said, we understand how the kingdom of God comes. It's like yeast in the dough. It's like seed in the soil. It's like finding a hidden treasure. A hidden treasure. Most don't know is there. It's like a welcome home party. It's not like a war. It's not going out and killing the bad guys. That's not how the kingdom of heaven comes. 
And so the early church did not try to change the world through force. That was Jerusalem's mistake. The earliest followers of Jesus would not fight because they were patient and they trusted God. Now it's easy to mock this as naive and irresponsible and people still do to this day. And this is one case where it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or progressive, right or left, Republican or Democrat, both mock this. They see it as naive. As you can't change the world that way. But it's the way of the cross. And it is the way of peace. And it is the way of following Jesus. And it is what causes Jesus to weep if we don't see it. And if we can't see this, Jesus does indeed weep because there is a hiddenness to the way of peace. We, we have to trust Jesus. I mean, at some point, you're going to have to trust somebody. And we're going to have to make up our minds. Are we going to trust that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about? That Jesus actually is the light of the world. That Jesus actually did, as he tells Pilate, come to bear witness to the truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate's cynical and says, what is truth? Then later tells Jesus, don't you know? Don't you know what the truth is? Here's the truth. I have power to release you and I have power to kill you. That's Pilate's truth. Pilate's truth is that the world is shaped through those who wield the most capacity to inflict violence. And Jesus stands before Pilate and says, that's a lie. That's not true. But you can't see it. And if we don't see it, we'll keep believing the old lies that we can fight our way to shalom. Kill the bad guys and we'll have shalom. No. See, the problem is when we fight monsters in the way of monsters, we become monsters and the devil still wins. This is Jesus' tearful lament over Jerusalem. You did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. That's a tragedy. That God came to the holy city and by and large the holy city did not recognize God. Because God came in the way of peace. God was unrecognized. God did not come riding a war horse. He came riding a donkey. God did not come declaring war. God came teaching peace. And this is the way that God always comes. And do not, do not, do not, do not go all Revelation 19 on me. Because actually I know that chapter. It is a subversive prophecy that Jesus appears in the heavens on a white horse. But remember, his robe is dipped in his own blood before the battle begins. And how does he wage war? Not with the sword in his hand, which is the way of the world, but with the sword that comes from his mouth, with his word. And you say, yeah, but, but 200 million were slain. It's the Roman Empire that's eventually going to fall before the word of Christ. I count myself as one who has been slain by the word of Christ and then raised to newness of life. Yeah, but it says the birds, the, the birds of heaven devoured their flesh. Amen. May, may the fowls of heaven consume my flesh. Not my embodiedness, but my carnality. 
Come on, how many of you still say, I do have some carnality that it'd be nice if one of those birds of heaven would devour? This is the spiritual reading of the book of Revelation that we must employ if we're going to keep it consistent with Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not at some point go, you know what, this isn't working. Screw the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just come back and kill everybody. I'm glad you laughed. That's good. I'm glad I didn't get amens. Jesus is the light of the world. And it's in his light that we perceive the truth of shalom. And if we fail to step into this light and allow Jesus to speak for himself, we become susceptible to the persuasive lies of the world of war. And the result is spiritual blindness. Blindness. We can't see. Now, the last time I preached here was so long ago, by the way. I preached on the Jesus revolution. Remember that? Can you, vag can you vaguely remember that? So I encountered Jesus. In the Jesus Revolution as a 15-year-old. I get saved. And so I start taking the scriptures seriously. I'm 15 years old. I read the Sermon on the Mount. I realize that killing is not compatible with following Christ. By the way, it's not that hard to figure that out. I mean, I just saw it. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Let Jesus speak for himself. Take him seriously. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to make it practical. Just go, this is what Jesus calls us to. It's something other. And so I realized that killing people was not compatible with following Christ. And I said so. I mean, I said so at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then I got taught. I got taught the imperial Christianity that has infected the church ever since Constantine 17 centuries ago. And I became spiritually blind, at least in, this, in the area of the things that make for peace. I became spiritually blind. Now the good thing is though, Jesus heals the blind. You, you can become spiritually blind, but Jesus, one of his specialties is healing the blind. So I saw at first, and then I became spiritually blind as far as the things that make for peace. And I was that way for about 25 years. But then Jesus healed, he, he healed my eyes so that I could, I could really see what I actually saw as a kid. As a teenager, in my 40s, my eyes were healed and I could see again. And that's where I want to bring this sermon to a, that's where I want to land it. So it's Palm Sunday, but you know, there's the day before Palm Sunday. And the day before Palm Sunday, Jesus heals a blind man. So I want to back up to the previous chapter here in Luke, Luke 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Matthew tells us, or no, Mark tells us his name. His name is, you know his name, don't you? What was his name? Somebody tell me the blind man's name. Bartimaeus, thank you. Bartimaeus. He's in Jericho. If you're coming, you know, 
from Galilee, Jericho's the last stop before you get to Jerusalem as far as the city. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man, we know his name was Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. I grew up in a Baptist church. Let's see if I can remember those hymns. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. What do you mean Jesus of Nazareth is passing by? Passing by? Do not pass me by. And he begins to cry out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that's, that's, a, that's a term for Messiah. Uh, that's a term for Christ. He's essentially saying, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Well, we could just turn it pretty easily into the Jesus prayer. Jesus Christ, son of God, Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet committed to the status quo. Just keep everything. Let's have some decorum here, Bartimaeus. We're having a nice little procession with Jesus. Nobody's going to get changed, but it's going to be nice. Nothing's going to happen, but it'll, it'll feel, it'll feel sacred. But he shouted, I like, I like this Bartimaeus character. Don't you tell me what to do. I'm the blind one here. But he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me see again. He had seen, this isn't the man born blind. This man had seen before, but he'd lost his sight. He said, I used to see, but now I don't see, but I want to see again. That's what I want you to do for me. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. And all the people, when they saw it, they, they praised God. So Bartimaeus is blind and then he gets, he recovers his sight because he cries out to Jesus. And now he's following Jesus and the next day is Palm Sunday. I, I like to think of Bartimaeus there on the Mount of Olives on that Palm Sunday pass. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I was blind, but Jesus healed me. I'm here today because I couldn't see, but now I can see because Jesus healed me. I want you to stand up with me. Stand up with me. The problem with the problem with being with problem with spiritual blindness is sometimes we don't know it. It's hard to know what you don't see if you can't see it. It's hard to know what you can't see if you can't see it. But maybe you can have some intuition that maybe there's some things I'm spiritually blind to. Anybody here say, I think that. 
There's, there's, there's a possibility for that. Maybe there's some things I'm spiritually blind to. Anybody here admit to that? Well, well let's just kind of, let's all be Bartimaeus today. Let's just begin to pray. Come on, just begin to pray. Just maybe lift your hands and maybe say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to regain my sight. I don't want to stay, I don't want to stay spiritually blind. Jesus, I know that, that you, you weep over people when they can't see. When, when, because they, they're, they're headed in a direction that's going to bring consequential destruction into their life. And Lord, I don't want to be that person. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to recover our spiritual sight. Help us to see again. We don't want to stay blind and go to destruction while you weep over us, not, not if it can be averted. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray that with me. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray a little louder so you can get his attention. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus stops and he says, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And we say, Lord, we want to recover our sight. We want to see again. We want to see again. We want to see again. We don't want to miss the visitation. When you come into our life, we don't want to miss it. Heal us, Jesus, that we might see what you're doing in our life. We don't want to miss, Jesus, you're drawing near, you're visiting. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it, Jesus. Give us our sight back so that, so that when we see you at work in our life, we'll say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We perceive it. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. And now, let's get ready to come to the table of the Lord. Join with me in, first of all, confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins that we, we might receive the Lord's merciful forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. 
So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.